Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Hi friends, I'm way behind on Patreon shoutouts, so I just need to get on with it, but I also need to tell you that we've added another show in Melbourne in October, and it's with a fresh-faced young starlet by the name of Narelle Fraser. So check out our Facebook page for details about that. Uh, so thank you to the following people who became patrons in April. I'm not even joking. Okay. Some of them have probably deleted their membership already, but whatevs. Hello, anyway, to James Savage, or is it Savage? Remember that lady? Um, Savage, the athlete? I love how she said Savage. Grace Horton, 
Megan or Megan Roderick. You know I'm up myself now and I say Megan. Merrin Hawking. That's got to be Merrin. Linda Lewis. Jade. Just Jade. Nicole Simpson. I swear I've already said that. Maybe it's another one. You know why I remember that one, don't you? Of course you do. Shannon Glover. Sharon Meredith. Melina Chalmers. Ashley Sandwith. I think I've said Ashley Sandwith as well. Melanie. Amanda Panitz. I think I'd remember Panitz. It's a good name. Kira. Katie Abdullah, Matt Adensel, Linda Anderson, Jenny Brooker, Erin Danks, Jade W. Proud. Yes, you are. Eliza Jennings, Maddie Mackin. That's a bloody good one, isn't it? G'day, I'm Maddie Mackin. How are you? I'm good, Maddie. How are you? Bloody good. I'm bloody, bloody good. Good. Sally Mackay, Kath St George, Melissa Kent, Kim McFarlane, Steph Buzzer. Buzzer, B-U-double-Z-A, Buzzer. You should meet Maddie Mackin. Maddie Mackin, meet Steph Buzzer. How are you, bloody? Stop it, stop it. Keep going, Leanne Markovich, Annie McGee. Oh, g'day, Annie McGee. You should meet bloody, bloody... Maddie Mac. Stop it. Just keep going. Lexi Ma. There you go. That's the last one. Thank you everyone so much for becoming patrons. Okay, on with the show. The following podcast contains accounts of child sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Treatment providers, particularly sex offenders, have often been accused of being offender lovers, civil libertarians, and blah blah. I couldn't be further. That couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I think, as far as I'm concerned, I see myself as an agent of social control, and my job is about community protection. And if that means I have to pretend that I really like someone, I'll do it. And I mean, that's one of the things that we've struggled with. When I was first setting up the treatment program, we came under a lot of criticism, even from the victims' lobby. And it was kind of like, you know, not just how could you do that, but as women, how could you do that? And it's kind of like my view is as women, how can you not? When Cardinal George Pell lost his appeal in a Melbourne court last week, thoughts turned to where he might serve his sentence. Up until now, Pell has been housed in the Melbourne Assessment Prison, or the MAP, in the CBD. As we've discussed before, he's no doubt been residing in the area of the MAP known as the Boneyard, because that's where all convicted sex offenders are held for their own safety, particularly priests. He's locked in his cell for 23 hours a day, and the MAP is very overcrowded as it is. It's not meant for long-term residents. So, in view of the failure of his appeal, Corrections Victoria will need to find more permanent lodgings for the Cardinal for at least as long as it takes him to get another appeal heard in the High Court. The most likely location is the Hopkins Correctional Centre in Ararat, 200 kilometres west of Melbourne, because it specialises in the housing and treatment of sex offenders. There are currently seven former members of Catholic clergy serving time at Hopkins, including Gerald Ridsdale, known as Australia's worst pedophile priest. 
Ridsdale was one of the many priests and brothers who turned Ballarat into a hotspot of clerical abuse. And he and George Pell were housemates at the infamous St Olympias Presbytery in the 1970s. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Alongside the Hopkins Correctional Centre is a relatively new facility called Corella Place, although it's more colourfully known as the Village of the Damned because it was built to house the people the rest of us don't want anywhere near us. In fact, many of us tell each other openly we'd kill them if we got just five minutes alone with them. Our guest today spends her life sitting alone with sex offenders. She's a clinical psychologist who runs a private practice treating men who are battling their desire to sexually assault children. But Dr Karen Owen worked for many years in corrections. She designed the treatment plans implemented in the Hopkins Centre in Ararat, and she knows Corella Place intimately. In this episode, Dr Karen answers my questions about pedophile priests, about orgies in sex offenders' prisons, about when George Pell will begin his sex offenders' treatment and what potential obstacles there are in treating men like him. I, in the mid-90s, was involved in, first of all, developing the treatment program for community corrections and also then the treatment program for the prison system. And we were the first treatment program, sex offender treatment program in Australia. So... And then I managed the program for 11 years. I was just reading an article about you and about your practice now. So, I mean, I guess the most interesting thing that I read in this article was, it seems so obvious when you read it and yet shocking, is that outside of prison, there's actually very little in the way of treatment programs for people who feel as though they may offend against children. Where do they turn if they need help with that? There are very few places to turn. I mean, I think ultimately it's to private practitioners and there are few and far between who are prepared to work with people who, uh, you know, feel they might have some... They're heading towards offending or have some issues in that area. And I guess one of the things that stops people coming forward too is that this whole notion of confidentiality. So, you know, as a psychologist, your files can be subpoenaed to court. They can be seized by the police. So, you know, it's really difficult to provide any guarantees. I mean, in fact, we can't provide any guarantees about confidentiality. I mean, it doesn't mean we're going to go skipping down the street telling people about who our clients are, but you know, if we're, if we're questioned or our files are subpoenaed, that information has to be available. And we're legally bound to keep notes. So I think that makes it difficult as well for people to feel safe in coming forward. Also, we've spoken about this issue on this show before, but could you reiterate for us, please, can you talk to us about the clinical definition of a pedophile and how many people actually in our community would be classed by you as as pedophiles and and then how many people, though, could be sex offenders? What's the difference? The the whole notion of pedophilia is really fraught with issues and it's a, a clinical diagnostic criteria from you know, the sort of psychiatric fraternity, really, that 
talks about sexually interest or and and there's for often not always but sexual contact with children the issue that I personally have and I and, and I don't use the term um, in terms of treatment or assessment uh, is that it is just a psychiatric diagnosis and there's much more to offending against kids than being pedophilic so less than the research says really clearly less than 10% of people men generally but women as well who offend against children are actually pedophilic because it's about the exclusivity of arousal. So you're talking about a very small set of people or subset of offenders who are only aroused to children. They have a primary preference and are an arousal towards children. There are the rest of the offender population who offend against children who have adult sexual relationships generally with the exception obviously of their contact with children normal for want of a better word arouse patterns of arousal to, to adult females to adult men or whoever it might be but to adults and so but but still offend against children and they offend against children not because of arousal but because of a whole range of other factors so when you kind of get stuck in this notion of pedophilia you miss the reality of why people actually offend against kids. And so therefore we're, we're missing the opportunity to try and prevent it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the opportunity to recognise who might be mm. a risk to our children as well. Because, you know, this whole notion of pedophilia often comes along with, you know, um, these stereotypical views about, you know, this old bloke in a, in, in a trench coat with coffee stains on it wandering around the park looking for kids. And so they exist, but they exist in a minority. And the majority of offenders um, against children are people known to the kids within the family, within the, you know, within the sort of social community who have access to kids. And those sort of, you know, nasty-looking, very easily identifiable, slimy old men aren't the ones that get close to kids. Nice men get close to kids. Mm. So... Can you speak then to this phenomenon that we have observed uh, over the last however many years and that has been in the news recently? How is it that it seems as though such a large number of members of clergy have sexually assaulted children? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of people would have a lot of views about about the why. Um, I think putting anyone in an unnatural kind of sexual environment so an environment where they're required by virtue you know of, of their be it religion job whatever you want to call it not to have intimate sexual relationships is unnatural and and therefore you're, it's going to create problems I think and I think primarily for me that's one of the the main issues that really still needs to be looked at but the flip side of that and is that um, it's not an accident that uh, um, we see large numbers of, of offenders coming from specific groups. So not just particularly the churches, but also volunteer organisations, you know, scout leaders, that those kind of, of groups. It's not that they're a scout leader that makes them offend. 
they become a scout leader because they want to offend. Mm. They find roles and places where they have access to children. Absolutely. Look, most of the men that we work with that are long-term child sex offenders, um, it's, it, it's an unpalatable way to explain it, but frankly, it's a profession. They spend their lives setting up situations and scenarios where they can gain access to children. And so, unfortunately, it's those kind of roles that attract them. And in the past, and I think it has, don't personally don't think it's changed a great deal, a lot of those organisations were very poor and continue to be very poor at screening, at supervision and at monitoring contact with children. So they're ideal organisations for men who want to gain access to children for sexual purposes. Do you think it's possible too that men can consider sexual contact with children if they know that it's happening uh, somewhere around them and that that can sort of lower their bar of acceptability around it? Specifically, I'm thinking about the cluster that we saw in Ballarat, for example, where yeah. there, we know that there was a lot of offending by a number of people. Is it possible that you can know that it's that other people are doing it and think maybe it's not that bad? I, I mean, I think, it, I, I think there's obviously that sort of group think kind of thing. So I certainly think that there's a possibility that the the sort of the sensitivity and the boundaries get very blurred within the group. But equally, I think, too, one of the things that happens when you see those kind of clusters is that it's the group think that gets them there in the first place. So people who are there who have that kind of proclivity or are engaged in that kind of activity are more likely to seek other like-minded people to work with them or be in their area. And so it kind of reinforces the way that they, they think. If you've got someone who, you know, um, let's take the Ballarat example, someone within the, you know, that, that region who is actively seeking and actively offending against kids, they're not going to be encouraging of bringing other people within to the region to work with them who have vastly opposing views, who are very public and very clear about what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I, and I think, to, to a very large degree, certain organisations, including the church, have been very good, one would probably say, at allowing that kind of movement around... So, yeah, and there also seems to have been a bit of a sort of bush telegraph of gossip about what people were up to, doesn't there? There seems to have been a bit of an understanding about people who were perhaps interested in that. Yeah, I mean, my um, my understanding of some of the, you know, not just the, the, the Ballarat area, but, you know, some of those pockets of offending within church organisations or within other organisations is that it, you know, it, it more than often is... There, there is bush telegraph and it is known about and it is to some degree or to actually to a large degree often sort of swept under the carpet or people moved sideways when there's no no other option um, rather than addressing the issue head on and I think that's been one of the, the really big issues that's allowed it to perpetuate. So how do your patients come to you normally? How do they find you? Where do they come from? In, in terms of private practice? Yes. Yeah. Often... It's kind of, it's sometimes through lawyers who, you know, so, so where there is going to be contact with the, with the court system. Um, but a lot of our um, individual clients are people who 
um, are struggling, who are fearful that they will move on to offend in some way. Um, and, you know, search on the internet, find us somehow. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder how they actually find us. But I think one of the important things for me is that when I was working within the correction system, I was always of the view and I guess always taught that, you know, men only go into treatment when they're forced to, when they've been caught, you know, and, and they only go into treatment because it looks good for parole. And when I moved into private practice, I very much still had that mindset and I couldn't have been more wrong. There are lots of people out in our community who are struggling with, their their attraction to to children or in these days difficulties with pornography addiction and and all sorts of of sort of sexually aberrant behavior who actively seek out people to help and treatment the issue is that as i said before there are so few people that are prepared to do it it must be hard to find you too it's hard to go to your gp and say i need a referral can you help me find this person I've noticed a number of victims of childhood sexual assault have expressed to me even, uh, which must take an enormous amount of courage to say out loud, that they're afraid of becoming perpetrators themselves. Is that a, yes. common, a common fear? It is a common fear. And actually, we have a number of clients who do present for treatment having not gone on to offend but fearful that they might, particularly, you know, men when they sort of get into their mid-20s and 30s and are starting to have their own children and particularly where offending has occurred within their own family unit mm. and they fear what, um, you know, what kind of father are they going to be? You know, is there a propensity because of their own event, their own victimisation as a kid or as an adolescent that they'll go on to offend? After the break, Dr Karen Owen tells us what awaits George Pell when he arrives in Ararat. Coming up on Australian True Crime, we hear about Corella Place, the so-called Village of the Damned. But first, Dr Karen Owen talks us through the procedure for new arrivals next door at Ararat's Hopkins Correctional Centre, where Cardinal George Pell is expected to serve his sentence and undergo sex offenders treatment with the seven other former priests serving time there. The first thing will be, uh, are they legally clear? So if someone is still going to appeal either sentence or conviction, then they won't be engaged in treatment oh. um, or assessment at that point. So they have to be legally clear to start to engage in treatment. And the rationale for that is that if you've got someone who's got a 10-year sentence, the time that you want to do treatment is the last three or four years of their sentence, not when they're first in the door. That doesn't mean that they're not doing, you know, other kind of treatment programs and and but offence-specific treatment because what you need is for the offence-specific treatment stuff that they've learnt to be as fresh in their mind as they can when they transition out into the community. And it also gives us a better sense of in the treatment process when it's left to, you know, before parole or before release, a better sense of who they are now and what they're up to now. So someone who... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You say offends and has a 10 or 15 year sentence is going to be 10 or 15 years older but at their time of release and if they're 60 or, or now they're 75 there's a big difference in their libido their arousal their sexual interest so all of that stuff needs to be taken in consideration which is why treatment is done in the last few years of, of prison sentence and you can't do that if someone's appealing their sentence or conviction you don't know First of all, are they going to walk out when they go to court next week? So you wouldn't want to start treatment. But also, are they? Like, what is their sentence going to be so that you can actually target treatment to be the best timing that we possibly can? Once they're legally clear, um, and so we know how long they've got as a sentence, they will be assessed by, used to be sex offender programs and then the sex offender assessment and treatment service and um, now it's called the forensic intervention service but essentially the clinicians that work in the prison, they'll be assessed for their their risk level and also a, an analysis of their offending history and their offending patterns so that we get start to get a sense of what are their treatment needs and from there they'll be whitelisted into treatment programs, as I said, at the end, towards the end of sentence. Is it different when the perpetrator has come from a very powerful position in society, in your experience, when someone has been, say, a priest or, you know, held a really lofty position like that? Are they different to treat? Sometimes the, the, those differences in terms of the degree in which they, particularly from a religious point of view, the degree in which they use their religion to justify their behaviour or to justify them not having to do treatment because they've repented in other ways. 
plays oh. and those kind of things. But certainly from our point of view, a distortion is a distortion. And so it might be a distortion about religion. It might be a distortion about their own offence history. It might be, it's, it's a level playing field as far as we're concerned. And it's the same in treatment with offenders against children and offenders against adults that whilst there's quite a hierarchy and offenders against adults appear to believe that they're better than offenders against children or they're less bad in some way, that as far as we're concerned, it's a level playing field. But is that um, because so many prison inmates have been sexually assaulted as children, that they have such hatred for sexual offenders of children? I mean, very possibly. But I, I, I think, too, one of, the, one of the things about... that, Without doubt, there are a number of men who offend against both adults and children who have their own and very horrendous victim histories. Mm. But the reality as well is that we know that the majority of victims of sexual assault are women mm. and not the majority of, of offenders against um, sexual offenders are women. So from my perspective and certainly supported in the research, there is no cause and effect relationship between a victim being a victim of sexual assault and going on to perpetrate. Mm. Now, while, so while some men do, and certainly you can't ignore the fact that they've got their own victim history and in some ways that's contributed to who they are now and, and how they behave, there's no cause and effect relationship. So, again, for me, that's a justification. That's not to say that we ignore it, but you don't offend because you've been offended against as a child. Then we have so many of them presenting, saying, oh, gosh, I'm scared that I'm going to become a perpetrator, even if they haven't had those feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that absolutely plays into those men that we were talking about before yeah. that, you know, present for treatment who are, so, are fearful of. And when you look at their histories, yes, they've got a, a history of being victimised, but... There's nothing else in their history to suggest that they've, you know, that that they have any of the kind of risk factors that would lead them to offend. They just hear it so often. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a real, it's a real misunderstanding. And again, that kind of use of those kind of justifications for us are part of the treatment process that you have to deal, unpack those and deal with those as part of the treatment process because they're actually inaccurate. Were you part of the development of Corella Place in Ararat? By the time Corella Place was actually being developed, I had moved into to private practice. But, I mean, I continue to have contact with Corella Place through the clients that I continue to work with. So, so what can you tell us about that, the so-called Village of the Damned? In about 2005, um, the government brought in legislation that enabled um, the Department of Justice to apply for a supervision order if, an offend if at the end of sentence or at the end of parole an offender was deemed to still, still pose a high risk of offending to the community. Mm. So when that legislation came in, the Corella Place was developed as a tra transitional facility. So they're not officially in prison, they're in the community, despite the fact that the Ocarella Place sits on a piece of ground that's no longer gazetted prison property, but next to, alongside or next to the prison. And it's only for offenders who are on a supervision order. So they've gone back, to, they've been, had an assessment, they've gone back to the court and the court has been satisfied that they propose an ongoing risk to the community or significant ongoing risk to the community and need to continue supervision to be supervised in the community. 
and Corella then acts as a transitional accommodation facility when they're unable to, to find suitable accommodation in the community or when they, they can't be incarcerated because they're no longer under sentence but they pose too significant a risk to be living in the community um, with less supervision. So it, they're not literally locked up in there but they have some kind of the ankle bracelets or something like that? Yeah, they're not, they're, they're not locked up per se but they're not allowed to leave the facility without an escort okay. and they're, they're monitored in terms of you know electronic monitoring by the ankle bracelet so you know if they were to technically they could walk out the front gate of Corella but the reality is that they they can't because of the degree of internal supervision so staff around um, and also the electronic monitoring process. One of the people who I guess was in mind when this facility was developed was Sean Price who murdered Marcel Vukatic a couple yes. of months after he was released from prison and clearly was not ready, you know, will never be ready to live in the community. But that's the nature of sentencing. He's, he was sentenced for his previous conviction and was released. So what are your thoughts about this system, about people like Price? Are we to lock him up for the rest of his life? Is that what we do with some people? Um, I mean, I, I guess as a treatment provider, I have, to, I have to believe, and I do believe that if, if you do it kind of thoroughly and properly, that treatment does have an impact and certainly all the research suggests that you know with a good treatment program and we're talking about a treatment program that follows kind of you know best practice models and you know, not hocus pocus stuff but it can actually halve the recidivism rate yeah. I mean like with any research there's always going to be problems brought with that the research is based on the people that we have incarcerated and the ones that we catch so the ones that are out in the community offending that we don't know about you know, we don't have research on, obviously. So I absolutely accept there's always those kind of problems. But I have to be a believer, you know, in what we do, that there is there is some benefit to treatment. But I do think that one of the things that the treatment community and, you know, corrections, not just um, in Victoria but worldwide, is really are still struggling with is what do you, what do you do with those people who continue to represent a high risk in spite of having all of the best practice treatment provided to them and and the cold hard realities they exist there are going to be some people who always represent that significant risk to the community and we're not at a point yet in terms of legislation or how the community thinks about it where we say you know you, the American model, three strikes and you're out for good. We're not We're not at that point in Australia. Um, we're not at the point where we throw away the key. And in the absence of that, the cold, hard reality is, which is why I do what I do and why all of my colleagues do what we do, is that at some point these men will be back in the community. And if you want to keep the community safe, then you've got to do something. And, so, and that is about, you know, at the moment, treatment. And that's not to say that I don't think there are some people that need long-term supervision be it in a locked facility of some kind or but the you know I'm not the policy maker and we're not in that political environment so yeah, it's kind of it's it's a, it's a problem when we talk about it it feels like the most important terrifying problem in the world and yet as you say the vast majority of offenders are actually in the community and we don't even know about them absolutely 
absolutely. Yeah, I mean, even the legislation that we have now in terms of supervision orders, which 2018-2019 uh, changed to incorporate serious violent offenders as well, uh, as well as sexual offenders, still is focused on, as it should be, those men who have a re repeated pattern of offending and continue to represent a high risk. So, you know, there's a there's an awful lot of people every day who are being released from prison who aren't deemed to be high risk, who do have an offence history and to varying degrees will continue to represent a risk to the community as well as all of those people that we don't know about. Where are these men who pop up when they're 60 and 70 with historical offences who have been in the community for 60 or 70 years offending? Yeah, not to mention the mm -hmm. family situations where for so many complicated reasons they are never brought to justice. I've been speaking to yeah. a, an incest victim recently who talks about the fact that the entire family was groomed by this man. And so even when she tried as an adult to prosecute him and, you know, her sisters couldn't bring themselves to support her and they were they were still lying about what happened in their home in their childhood. Yeah, and, and that's uh, I think that's one of the important things to you know, to, as one of the important kind of messages to try and get out is that that's more of the reality of offending than, you know, the the extremes. The, the stuff we see in the newspapers are, are a, a small, you know, they're, they're sensationalised and they're often quite salacious and so, you know, people are interested in it. But the reality is that there are a very small number of men in our community who behave in that way, the majority, the vast majority of, of our offenders are, as I said before, we know in in the family, known to children, um, known to the family unit and often not detected. Is the prison environment sometimes worse for sex offenders? I guess there is a suspicion sometimes that putting a group of sex offenders together is unhelpful. Now, for example, in July this year, there were headlines about Daniel Kelsall, who murdered Morgan Huxley in Sydney. The headline is very sensational. It says that he's too tired from daily sex sessions to participate in programs in prison and that because he's in prison with other rapists and uh, sexual deviates, says the, the column, and so having orgies, basically. I haven't heard of orgies in Victorian prisons, so, um, yeah, I, it's certainly not something that's been in, in my experience. And the, I think sometimes the, the, likely, the whole notion that having sex offenders housed together, um, you know, uh, is problematic and they feed off each other and and certainly that is that may well happen you know we, we know outside of prison that there are groups of men you know like-minded men particularly now with the ease of access on the internet who communicate and who share pictures and information and all of that kind of thing but the reality of offending is that it's done it's very rare to find offenders who co-offend, particularly against children, but co-offend against, um, against victims together. Offending is, is more often than not a lone activity. And so all of the, my, my experience certainly has been this notion that having you know, all six offenders in a group together, um, you know, they feed off each other. There's always that risk. There's also, which is one of the powerful things of treatment, they all have a very distinctive and individual set of distortions and they're very good at challenging each other. 
Mm. So whilst they might not recognise their own faulty beliefs, they certainly recognise faulty beliefs of other people and challenge each other on that. So I actually think, you know, all of the best practice models are about treatment needs to be done in groups, that the group treatment process is more powerful because otherwise... It's some, some therapist, male or female, who is standing there telling this group of people that this is not how to behave. That it's very easy to become a, a clash of cultures, really. You know, what I believe is different to what the group believes mm. and therefore, the, you know, the group think is, is stronger. But that's not the case in treatment. That's not the actual reality of what happens in treatment. Do you like your patients? Do you... I mean, for us, it seems... A lot of people would say I couldn't I couldn't sit in a room with someone who is attracted to children or who has committed sexual assault on children. Can you find yourself enjoying the company of a person who has committed offences like that? Um, some, I mean, sometimes yes. Some of the circumstances of the men that I work with that have led them to offend on some level, you know, like you can see how they got there and why they got there and there are aspects of their personality and the way that they function that they're actually, there's some kind of genuine niceness to them underneath it all. There are others clearly that are not nice and that I don't like (laughs) and that's the reality of it. But um, I guess my job is about making sure that even when I feel like that, that's my issue, not their issue. They have to believe that I'm alongside with them because if they don't, I can't work with them. Yeah, no, that's, that's the absolutely the, the mature perspective. You know, most of us have the luxury of being able to say, oh, no, I could never speak to someone like if I knew that or yeah. be polite yeah. to them or I could never. Yeah. But, yeah, you have to get to know them. Yeah, and at times, it, like at, it is at times, it is a struggle. Um, but I think one of the things about it's kind of like one of the the, the professional things that we need to do. Uh, I have a really good network of people that I work with. My colleagues in private practice worked with me, or I worked with them, in the prison system, and we've worked together now for twenty odd years. And they know me, and I know them, and they know when I'm struggling. And I can say to them, oh, God, I hate him. I don't like this bit. And without judgment. And I think that is really important because you do need somewhere to be able to say that and to put that. Otherwise, if I go back into treatment and there's someone who has impacted on me and I don't like them and I start getting overly harsh and overly critical, then I'm not doing my job because ultimately for all of us, it's not about... You know, at times we've been, treatment providers, particularly sex offenders, have often been accused of being offender lovers, civil libertarians and blah, blah, blah. I couldn't be further, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I think as far as I'm concerned, I see myself as an agent of social control and my job is about community protection. And if that means I have to pretend that I really like someone, I'll do it. I'm so glad you made that point. You are accused of being do-gooders, aren't you? Yeah. Bloody do-gooders who tell us we should be nice to pedos. Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the things that we've struggled with. When I was first setting up the treatment program, we came under a lot of criticism, even from the victims' lobby. And it was kind of like, you know, not just how could you do that, but as women, how could you do that? And it's kind of like my view is, as women, how can you not? How can you know that these men will be back in the community 
at some point in the future, absent of anything that might try and stop them creating another victim. Because we're not allowed to shoot them. That's why. (laughs) You know, because that's the other perspective. It's like, well, we should shoot them all. Yeah, well, okay, well, we can't. So Yeah, I mean, there's no way to stop a conversation at a barbecue better than saying that you work with sex offenders. Um, It either starts a riot or it just, (laughs) stop the conversation dead but you know so I often avoid even saying you know that's well not often I nearly always avoid saying that's what I do I bet but when you do when it does kind of come out or people know what you do there's always that really dichotomous kind of oh god you must be a saint how can you do that I couldn't talk to those people or we should you know draw on quarter them and chop chop off their genitals mm. and the the reality is that we're that I'm certainly no saint and we are not in a position as a community where we accept chopping genitals or killing people as being mm. the current method so in the absence of that Let's do something constructive. And if tomorrow, as a community, we change legislation and we decide that we are going to bring back corporal punishment, so be it. And then I'll make a decision at that time whether I want to work in that kind of setting and whether I want to be the one to push the button. Because that's a personal decision for me. But in the the absence of that, I just find all of the, the discussions about, you know, what we should do as unhelpful. If we really believe that's what we should do, instead of bellyaching about it, getting involved in politics and do something about it. They all get involved in treatment and do something about it. If we have a listener who themselves or who knows somebody who does need help in other states around Australia, where would they start? What would they even Google to find somebody like you if they feel like they can't go to their GP and ask or whatever? What, What would they do? I would always go to the Australian Psychological Society and they've got to find a psychologist service. And the areas that psychologists work in are listed in the Asphalt Psychology Service. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.